In life, the most important thing is trust. Without it, everything is a lot harder in a quickly changing and turbulent time. Barclay Pierce Capital is a safe pair of hands, an organisation built on people. They understand you've worked hard to build your nest egg and their asset management business is tailored to suit your needs. Their services help grow your wealth in order to provide long-term safety and security for you and your family. BPC, just a phone call away. The new Elite Bet app has arrived. It's got all the betting features you expect and new ones you're going to love. Elite Bet is your one-stop shop on race day with Hot Bet, where you can back the tips of proven winning punters. Build fast sports multis and play same game multis. The Elite Bet app is the smoothest betting experience around. Trusted for 10 years, Elite Bet is 100% Australian owned. The only betting app you need this summer is Elite Bet. Gamble responsibly. Welcome to the Building Resilience Podcast, a show where we explore the world of sport, music and business and deconstruct the tools and ethos of world-class performers to create growth and optimise business. I'm Noel Olnert, the CEO of Securo, and today I'll be talking to Blair Crawford, the CEO and founder of identity company Daltrey. As the founder of a successful startup, I caught up with Blair to discuss resilience in business, as he has managed his company through the turbulent times that COVID brought, as well as some of the major issues as a society we're facing when we go down the path of cybersecurity. Building Resilience Podcast. Blair Crawford, welcome to the Building Resilience Podcast. Great to be here. Awesome to see you, mate. Um, we go back a long way in the podcasting world. In fact, my uh, my virgin mission on uh, the podcast train was uh, was with yourself um, on Identity Today when you launched Daltrey. So it's great to come back full circle. Yeah, you were number one on the podcast. You've never come back, though. <laughs> I haven't been invited back, to be honest, mate. That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> Too busy with your own podcast now, Mr. Superstar over there. <laughs> Oh, mate, you know, not enough hours in the day for, for multiple podcasts. Uh, but all jokes aside, um, since we did catch up, uh, Daltrey, your organisation, has just gone from strength to strength. And I thought it would be amazing to have you on the podcast today to really talk about resilience from a startup founder level. We often see people uh, kind of in the newspapers, on the front of Forbes magazines, uh, winning different awards. And often people think it all happened 10 minutes ago, but of course, there's a lot more goes into building an organization from scratch. So I thought that's where we'd start today is, could you talk to me how you got into the world of biometrics? Maybe give us a bit of a flavor who Daltrey are. Um, and yeah, kind of start at the beginning of, I guess, your career. Yeah, 100%. Um, so I've been in the biometric industry for about eight years or so. Um, worked across biometrics, um, predominantly in high security environments. Done a lot of work across the correctional industry, defence, um, federal police. And I seen that there was this opportunity to basically take biometrics from where it was being deployed in very specific scenarios across high security areas and make it a capability that was available for larger cyber security um, use cases, really in line with the threat environment which was developing right now across Australia and globally. The journey though was, um, I suppose it was kind of interesting. Um, I was the global sales director, did various uh, for this previous company I was at when I started my, my career in biometrics. Lots of projects in ANZ, in the Middle East, Europe, UK, and I started to realise that 
the same challenges when it came to deploying biometrics existed irrespective of the type of project it was. It was very siloed in terms of its deployment, as I said there. Integration was always difficult. There'd be these multi-million dollar projects where one part of an agency, if it was government or one part of an enterprise, would get the benefit of it. And then you'd have people in the other areas of the business or the agency put their hands up, you know, a few months later and say, hey, can we get some of that biometric stuff? And the answer would be like, yeah, yeah. Nah, <laughs> nobody really thought about anybody else using it. Yeah, it's just for us special people. Just for us. And I was like, this is crazy. How do you take it from a technology which is a premium price point? The economies weren't there back in the day for it, and it was, it was very specific. And how do you build it so that it's a capability that sits within the identity and the security stack and then allow the operation to use it wherever they see fit? Um, so yeah, after tons of experience in doing that, um, I got to the point where it was like, let's do this ourselves. Let's step out with all the learnings. Let's see how we can build it so that not only do we have the technology available across all of an operation, but we do it in a way which, and this was one of the other problems that, that just to go on to this, but the cybersecurity aspect, biometrics was, was, was deployed literally for its function. That ability to match a person to some earlier version that has been enrolled as a reference. But the cybersecurity piece wasn't being deployed, so being able to make sure the integrity of that match at any given point in time was being done. Um, and that was the other piece of the puzzle that we wanted to fix. So long story short, um, we said, here's what the industry has to look like. Here's the current threat environment. Let's pull it together. Um, and the Vision Adultery brought together you know, a range of global experts, um, including myself. Um, and we got going. Congratulations. It's been awesome to watch your uh, journey from the outside um, and partly on the inside as well, kind of uh, having that relationship with the, uh, the organisation I run, Securo. Um, and I know that it's no mean feat to get this organisation from where it is. What would you say would be the biggest character trait that you've had to draw down upon that's enabled you to, to go from zero to one? I think it was a great piece of advice I was given um, relatively early in my career. Was it by me? It was, no, you've given me some advice, but I've largely ignored it to this point. <laughs> Joking. Um, the, uh, the biggest piece of advice is, yeah, don't pretend you know everything. Um, like, there's this whole thing, like, you fake it till you make it. Like, that is a dangerous piece of ad advice in many ways. It is in the cyber world when you're dealing with people's data and livelihood. 100%. And, um, yeah, one of the biggest pieces of advice, is, and, and, and I suppose, generally speaking, I'm pretty open to, to what people say and always learning, especially if they've made tons of mistakes and they can say, hey, avoid this. So don't pretend you know everything and be extremely open to, to surrounding yourself with people who provide great expertise and experience in the direction that you want to go in. Um, so, yeah, that's been something, I think, from my perspective, you know, listening. Have you got any kind of rituals or um, processes that you that you draw down upon? I know that when I speak to a lot of startup founders or people in business who come from a technical background, um, and I appreciate you came from all that sales aspect, likewise with myself, we're both running very technical businesses, but come from a, from a sales world versus the, the hands-on technical. 
Um, often technical people have found it a bit more difficult to kind of put themselves out there. Um, and I think generally people find it quite hard to be vulnerable and, and go in and put yourself into a specific scene that you're learning and that kind of fear of getting things wrong is really prevalent. Um, is there anything, that, any advice that you would give or any of the rituals that you have where you go to, to, to give you that confidence just to put yourself out there? Yeah, 100%. Um, I would always listen first before I make a a comment about something. That education and preparedness before going into something and putting up the hand, if I don't know something, and this is what you know, a team is all about, make sure if there's an obvious gap in your knowledge that you bring in a team member who can fulfill that because a business, especially one as complex as a cyber tech company, cannot be run by one person, especially one person that thinks they have all of the knowledge. So in terms of rituals, I suppose it's, it's, it's not so much a ritual, but it's making sure that the preparedness of every expert as they get ready to engage with a customer or a partner or have to fix a complex problem, that the right people are on the right seats in the bus, so to speak. Um, and I think being really pragmatic and, um, and responsive to risk, like in this organization, you know, cybersecurity, it's a no-joke environment, it's a no-joke type of company to, to set um, up and building risk culture um, an appreciation of risk into every layer of it so that people don't feel concerned about raising a problem or something that could happen. We're like, over-report on risks, that's better than under-reporting on risks. And then we can manage accordingly and get the right balance for the posture of the business. You mentioned culture there. And across all organizations, the, one that cons- the ones that consistently thrive, bounce back from any um, any challenges are the ones that have got that kind of culture um, or that can-do culture, that cohesive culture. But it's not easy to get, especially when you're scaling and you're having to bring in people from diverse backgrounds in order to meet the needs of your customers. What would be your couple of tips that you'd give for, for delivering upon a high-performance culture? We had a couple of shockers when we started this business. Like in terms of a macro environment, launching straight into um, the first lockdown in COVID is an awesome idea when yep. you start a cyber tech company. Um, it was obviously sarcasm for him. It could pick up in my tone. Um, then you had the most expensive tech market in terms of talent of all time. You had... Which we're still in. Which we're still in. Um, we had the increasing threat environment, which meant that the actual entry point for a cyber security vendor was much higher because in order to be saleable, the business had to look significantly more mature even in the last couple of years than maybe a tech or a security company would four or five years ago. So I think for us, there were a couple of things. We invested heavily in the employee value proposition because the competitive nature of the engineering environment um, and everything that goes around that in terms of operations, et cetera, um, was extremely competitive. We went from an early stage business that at one point it was an absolutely horrific number as an early stage business, but we spent a quarter of a million dollars on recruitment fees um, in six months. Now, that's clearly not going to be sustainable when you are looking to build a fast growth, high performing team um, and you're relying on that talent coming from a network of recruiters. Now, nothing against recruiters. I actually work with them um, still, but it's for very specific roles. It was about switching the balance and actually having a funnel of talent recognize us. So the employee value proposition, and what that meant was we had to look outside of just Australia 
people had to create a value proposition which would attract top talent across the country, so we, uh, across the world. So we now have eight countries. Um, they all have to um, fulfill a certain security requirement for us um, in terms of where they're based. But that was number one, employee value proposition. And we went from getting kind of zero candidates coming through to our job ads as we were this kind of random company in Sydney that started up to if we put out an engineering ad now, somewhere in the region of 200 applicants. And um, a couple of weeks ago, I got some stats from our team that they would interview at least 20% of them based on their CVs now um, because of the quality we're getting through. So number one, the employee value proposition was super big for us. The second thing um, in terms of building a, a culture and a high performance culture, especially in a high compet highly competitive market, we've got a 96% retention rate in the last two years, um, was our B Corp certification. So B Corp and a lot of companies, um, especially tech companies, tech is a, bad, a bit of a bad name right now. Um, in some circles, you know, they're, they've blown tens of millions of dollars, you know, been drinking from the fire hydrant in terms of capital, financial prudence kind of went out the window. And those fundamentals of economies became an issue. And that's what we're seeing in the market play out right now. But then you've also got your big tech companies um, who are getting kind of dragged through the dirt at the moment about how they treat people, how they treat the environment, um, what they think about their um, obligation to do something more than just the core value proposition of what their tech does. And we, we are in a particularly contentious technology um, stream, biometrics. It's kind of biometrics, artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, those types of tech um, often appear in the media. And unfortunately in the media, you get the very problematic use cases. And what that does is that it stops the advancement in many avenues of the really strong, powerful use cases that advance our security, advance our personal security. So in order for us to say, hey, we're going to do the responsible use of biometrics within a cybersecurity context, we need to build some substantiated evidence, not just that we're going to be good at how we do biometrics in terms of security and privacy, but every layer of our business is going to have real strong indicators of um, our morals, our ethics, um, and how about we how we go about things. And the B Corp framework is one of the most globally recognized frameworks in the world for your ESG piece. That allowed our team to really nominate the things which they were passionate about, aside from the security capability that we were going to produce for the market. Um, and that's been really important because the purpose piece has given people outside of what they do in a day-to-day um, something which they can really believe in with this business. So employee value proposition, key for the high performance culture and also a resilient culture um, and also the B Corp piece. With so many high profile breaches across Australia recently, it's really starting to accelerate the awareness. Um, what would be the tips and tricks that you would say to the people of Australia and the listeners um, outside of the business community really that they should be looking out for in order to protect themselves online? Yeah, um, it's a great question. I think you're right that people's awareness is going to go through the roof now. Um, I think that people need to ask better questions of the service providers. And we as cybersecurity professionals need to contribute to what those questions should look like for everybody. Um, what I mean is when you're engaging for a service, you should be able to, without reading through these extensive terms and conditions, be able to understand the privacy and security posture of that organization pretty quickly. You wanna know, what am I consenting to in terms of personally identifiable information and then personally sensitive information? 
what is the scope of how that information will be used? Um, will it be used and shared with third parties, for example, and, and what reasons? But then even more importantly than that, in many ways, is the control piece. Because if you consent and then you agree to the scope, but the appropriate controls are not in place, then consent and scope can't be enforced, right? So there should be a shortcut for users to be able to, and maybe this is something that we could come up with, um, almost a templated 101 about how we as an organization treat you, customer, in terms of security, privacy, consent, and scope. You know, where's my data going? Why do you need it? Um, and I think the other thing that's coming up right now that people need to understand um, a little bit more in terms of where their own security and privacy posture sits is, is the extent to which I'm giving up X data equitable in terms of the value I'm getting, right? And I don't think people fully comprehend that spectrum um, as just a matter of position, which I think is our responsibility as cyber vendors and security um, professionals to be able to help people ask those questions. And I, I kind of use the example where people are giving all this information to Facebook and on the surface, they give X information to Facebook and they, in exchange, get to communicate with friends and family overseas. They get to um, show what they're doing. They get to be part of things like um, uh, marketplaces to buy cheap furniture, whatever it might be. And that's great. But when you start to dig into the detail a little bit and you say, well, if that value exchange was equitable and fair and I'm giving up my data and receipt of that service is good, how does it change when you find out that the data which was in Facebook was then used to influence the Cambridge Analytica? And it's like, whoa, now all of a sudden you're using that data and it ain't just about being able to communicate with family and friends, but somehow there's been a mechanism in there where we can actually influence the direction of society. That is an extreme example, but it is something that we need to be looking at in terms of the spectrum of value and we need to be helping people to ask the questions and understand. It's an extreme example, but an example that actually touches any everyone. Plus it happened. And it happened, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not theoretical. It happened across many elections um, and across many countries, right? So it's, it's a real-world thing. Um, and I think your point there around we've got to be asking bigger questions or just be asking more questions. They don't have to be necessarily big questions. Yeah, it's great. a case of, right, what's this data being used for? positively, but and negatively as well, depending on what you decide's good and what you decide's bad, it's a personal preference. And I think there's a lot of information out there that is being used, as you mentioned, for potential gain in other areas, maybe political, maybe it be kind of financial gain that uh, people are, are oblivious to, absolutely oblivious it's out there. Um, I'm just gonna pivot quickly back to, to, to the startup aspect. Um, Talk me through some of the, the dark days of, of setting up an organization um, and, uh, and what, what, what got you through those, uh, those dark days. We, um, it's funny when you set up a business and you've got, um, you got your risk profile, right? We talked about risk earlier on and being very um, forthcoming with what the risks are. But you've got your probability ratings and you've got the kind of one percenters, you know, <laughs> there's a one percent chance this will happen, but put our mitigation. I reckon when you start a tech startup, um, especially in the macro environment we have, um, when you realize that those one percenters, like three of them happen or four of them happen, <laughs> then you realize that that whole probability weighting 
in the context of what you're trying to do with the macro environment which she experienced over the last two years, um, especially uh, in many ways the, the cyber um, investment market in Australia, as well as what was going on the tech talent plus the global perspective on tech. As well as the fact that you doing it, you doing so much of it, right? So you're, 100%. Uh, you're, you're chief cook and bottle washer, you're, you're pitching for business one minute and you're, uh, and, uh, and you're stacking iron brew in the fridge the next. And I can't labor enough on the point that the, the only way that, that the, the founders will get through those 1% probabilities that seem to happen more regularly than, um, than the probability would suggest is by making sure that the team members <clears throat> who you bring on in the early days, the right hand that almost has as much information as you, that can um, see everything from the same level that you can in terms of risk and approach and remediation. But then at a functional level, I think it's really important that the leaders that you choose in the early days know what they've signed up for. And I don't mean like they know that it's a startup and it's going to be, oh, it's a bit ambiguous and, you know, there's going to be ups and downs and blah. I mean, like genuinely know that it's bonkers sometimes, you know, and, and there isn't a blueprint because people, you know, people come into an organization and it's like, oh, where's your process for this? And it's like, what part of you're the first person who's ever done that role? Did you not understand? Where's my laptop? <laughs> it's currently sitting in JB Hi-Fi. <laughs> no, we're better than that. <laughs> we had our laptop policy sorted. <laughs> but the, um, the writing of the blueprints, the establishment, and I think what's really good about that, if you get that right, and we've been, pretty, um, we've been really lucky here with the team members which were brought on in the early days and, and, and going on the, 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 the emerging leaders within the business, they really embrace the fact that they have they have been given the opportunity to create, and I think that's one of the biggest things that people get if they choose to come into a startup. It's not just that it has a different type of upside and it's exciting, and um, but they genuinely get to be expert at what it is they want to be expert at, because they get to try things, they get to do the f the first time of something, they get to see if that works, and if it doesn't they're in charge of remediating and changing direction. So to your to the question, or suppose trying to make that a bit more succinct, um, to be honest, I forgot what the original question was. <laughs> but, <laughs> but get the team right and make sure that for when those 1% happen, that you're very comfortable that the other team members have the businesses back. Not just the founders back, but the businesses back because they've all signed up expecting that this will happen. Blair, thanks very much for taking the time today. I'm going to ask you the final question that I ask everyone on the show. How does Blair Crawford define resilience? Blair Crawford defines resilience by saying it's about making sure that you believe enough in the purpose for why you started something and you keep going, making sure that's always front and center of your mind. Blair, thank you very much for joining the show. Awesome to see you again, mate, and congratulations on the progress with Daltrey. You too, mate. Great to see you. Thanks for listening to the Building Resilience Podcast. Make sure you hit subscribe or follow wherever you listen so you don't miss future episodes. Thanks to our guest today, Blair Crawford. I appreciate your time. Thank you to our sponsor, Securo. If you'd like to know more about me or Securo, you can head to securo.io. Securo. Trust tomorrow. This podcast was made by Afternoon Sport Group. Afternoon Sport are you thinking about making a podcast? If so, contact the Afternoon Sport Group. We'll make it easy. With the technical know-how and industry knowledge, we'll get your podcast up and running in no time. Get in touch via our website or email 
hello at afternoonsport.com.